Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. Today on The Charlie Kirk Show, a very important discussion with Will Chamberlain, the founder and executive editor and editor-in-chief of Human Events. Will and I discuss, is there a God? Should we care? We talk about tech tyranny, the state of the conservative movement, and so much more. He's one of the the quickest minds I've actually ever had a chance to deal with. I think you guys are going to really be blessed and benefit from this conversation. Before we go any further, if you guys want to get involved with Turning Point USA, go to tpusa.com, tpusa.com, get engaged, get involved right now. Email me your questions, freedom at charliekirk.com, and buckle up, everybody. Here we go. Charlie, what you've done is incredible here. Maybe Charlie Kirk is on the college campus. I want you to know we are lucky to have Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk's running the White House, folks. I want to thank Charlie. He's an incredible guy. His spirit, his love of this country. He's done an amazing job building one of the most powerful youth organizations ever created, Turning Point USA. We will not embrace the ideas that have destroyed countries, destroyed lives, and we are going to fight for freedom on campuses across the country. That's why we are here. Welcome, Will Chamberlain. Yeah, good to be um, here, man. You know, it's funny. I, I keep, whenever I say your name, I, I, I almost say Wilt Chamberlain. Right. Have you ever gotten that before? Never. You're, this is literally the first the time, first anybody time anyone's ever, ever compared you yes. with the scoring legend Wilt Chamberlain. Indeed. Um, I sometimes joke that I'm not you know, quite as tall, but equally prolific, but that's you know, terrible. Horribly crass. Yeah. So uh, you are the owner and the exec editor in chief of Human Events. Yes. And um, how did you get into this originally? Well, I mean, originally I was kind of looking for something interesting to do with media and opinion because I'd built up a, a decent-sized Twitter following. Um, and then I originally, you know, Raheem Kassam actually came to me with the idea of uh, buying human events and, and kind of reviving this very classic, traditional um, conservative media brand. And I thought it was a great idea. Um, and so we went out, we bought it, and just started putting up news and commentary. Um, Raheem left us in, I think, July or August of last year, and since then we've kind of sharpened down to very editorial focus because that's kind of where I come from. I'm a lawyer by training. Um, and, and that's kind of what motivates me most. Mm-hmm. So you have, uh, you have some pretty hot takes on Twitter. I have to say a few. Yeah. W- one of which will we'll kind of start, you say, seize the endowments. Yes. Seize the college endowments. Yes. That's actually what kind of piqued my curiosity <laughs> to have you here on the Charlie <laughs> Kirk show. I think you're one of the more thoughtful guys out there. I have to tell you, right. You have very logical ways of coming about you know what, what what conservatives should do and, right. and why we should do it so let's just start right off the bat with one of your signature ones seize the endowments yeah how exactly would this work so um it's unclear how it would work it would certainly require a change in existing law and and there are definitely some due process questions you know taking property without due process is a challenge but to me it's more of a clarion call right like we talk i mean there are already some taxes on endowments but I view the entire college system as as almost fraudulent, fundamentally fraudulent. Mm-hmm. And and now now this is someone. Let me interrupt. You went to Georgetown Law. Yeah, 
Yeah, no. So I, unlike I, me, when I talk about the college system, who never actually participated right. in its fullest extent, right? You went to the highest levels right. of the and, academy. Yeah, that's true. Um, and spend a lot. Of, I spent a lot of time on college campuses, not only going to college, but I coached college debates. So I traveled. Wow. You know, did not not quite as much as you've traveled around college campuses, but I've done a decent amount. Um, and I've seen how the college experience has changed in the last decade, um, how much it's grown in expense, and how the product has massively declined in quality in terms of what the kind of education most people are getting. Um, and it's the kind of product where in, in any other industry, if, if students were regularly coming out or customers rather were regularly coming out 250 grand in debt and not better off, you'd say, well, that's fraud. We need to stop that. The FTC yeah, should shut, yeah, it shut it down, shut it down. And so I like the language of seize the endowments because seizing is what we do to assets that are procured fraudulently, mm -hmm. right? We're not saying tax it because taxing is what you do to assets that were occur, you know, accrued legally and while, or, or properly rather. And, uh, and there's something very wrong about the fact that universities are getting so wealthy um, while immiserating so many students. Well, and it's, it's even worse than that. They're teaching the students to hate our country. Right, that too. And they, I mean, they're teaching them to believe in nothingness. They teach them this awful postmodernist, anti-American, anti-freedom, anti-Western mm -hmm. philosophy that right. is rooted in, in, in nothing but uh, a pursuit of the decline of, of our country. And so it's even, I mean, it would be one thing if they just had no skills and it was just a fraudulent right. scheme, but right. they're actually producing individuals that will then participate in the decline of Western society. Yeah, they're not, they're not teaching things general. They're generally not teaching things of value. And in many cases, it's really, really deeply destructive. And so, but yet there's this kind of esteem that conservatives still hold universities in. Like there are these valuable institutions that we should try and preserve. Meanwhile, it's not just that they're teaching the wrong things. I mean, they're incredibly hostile to conservatives in hiring. You know, so many of these departments, mm -hmm. they're lucky if they have one in 10 conservative professors. Most of them have, won't even have any or will have like one token conservative. And, and, and that's simply not good enough when tax dollars are funding these universities that half the country is funding these universities yeah. and is effectively not represented on their what would you say to the conservative counter argument they earned these endowments through private donations and private philanthropy and they're used for the purpose of which they were given towards and if you start seizing private property then we as conservatives couldn't possibly support that. I mean, I, I think that the way that we should look at universities is to treat them the way that the left treats coal companies. Like our opening bid is we're going to shut you down and then we can negotiate. I think that as long as there's this open, you know, you see it as an opening bid, like we don't necessarily think you exist. We think you are fraudulent. We think that we should be setting trial lawyers loose on you to sue you for fraud. No, I'm not a fan of trial lawyers. Normally, but I, I, I like to think of them as, you know, I think the Republicans have been a little bit too reluctant to use them as a weapon on occasion, right? We're generally so pro-business that we don't think, hmm, there are these adversarial institutions out there that seem to never get sued despite behaving fraudulently. Maybe we need to change the law and, and see if we can change some incentives mm. here. So, um, so your philosophy then, would you, you're, you're more of kind of this new populist MAGA sure. conservative. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, it, I don't, I wouldn't say that my, you know, set of beliefs is, is particularly, you know, would fit into, I guess, Reaganism, really. Like, although mm -hmm. there are definitely points where Reagan and I would overlap, certainly, especially on the administrative state. But, you know, my, my first and, and one of my most important beliefs, they're, they're sort of interrelated. We shouldn't have self-defeating principles, i.e. principles that we adhere to that guarantee our defeat. And then, such as? Such as, I mean, a, a, the most classic one would be something like open borders, where you essentially make it impossible for conservatives to win elections. Um, but another one in this case would be if you're not willing to be adversarial to the universities, really hostile to them, well, then they're, they're literally 
trying to inculcate values in the next generation that will lead to the end of your political movement. So that, that seems very, very self-defeating. Um, and, and so I want us to also, in the second part of that is to be willing to use government power to achieve conservative ends. It's not necessarily like we need to massively increase the size of government. That, that, that's a very dangerous thesis, though, isn't it? I mean, perhaps, but I think the alternative is that the left, you know, there has to be a way to get to some sort of consensus around small government. But the way to get there is not for conservatives to be on, insistent that that's the only answer and that's the only thing we'll ever consider, right? You know, remember, you know, think about where the current negotiating position is. The left is out there saying, we want to use government to achieve progressive ends. And the conservatives are saying, we shouldn't use government to do things, period, and let the market handle it. Well, in that circumstance, the left is never going to think to itself, man, it, it, we should worry about the abuses of government power because one side is essentially unilaterally disarming, right? Now, on the other hand, if we're out there, no, we're going to use government to achieve conservative ends. Suddenly, liberals might think, you know, abuses about government power, they might be a problem. We now, should do something. Do you, use, do you look at this more as a tactic or do you think it's actually something that we should – because what you just phrased right there yeah. is it, that's, a ta that's a very smart tactical move right. to get them to actually get back to smaller government principles. Oh, yeah. I mean, or do you actually believe that if you were in charge of the instruments of, po of power, you would use these regulatory agencies, you would use this administrative mechanisms to accomplish conservative aims? I mean, I, I think, you know, on occasion you can, and I, I don't want – I mean, I generally still have enough of a libertarian in me to think, like, there's there's all sorts of knowledge problems, things, you know, what high Disruptions, yeah. Disruptions, like, you should generally be, you know, very, very skeptical of your ability to – do serious good, broad-based good with government. So I would still be a libertarian in that sense. Um, but there are definitely instances where, you know, I mean, I think, you know, the libertarians go clearly too far. Things like roads. Like, I mean, they, they come up with this very complicated way in which we could solve the problem mm -hmm. of public infrastructure, whereas the government can just say, actually, we can just solve this problem, tax people, build a road. Or I remember when, for example, on the border wall, libertarians were saying, but what about eminent domain? Like, eminent domain is bad. And my reaction was, this is exactly what eminent domain is for. Right. A border wall is a classic incident of this is a core aspect of sovereignty, protecting your borders. Yes. And if there is a holdout on the border demanding exceed, you know, massive funds, and then the government should be able to say, no, we're giving you market value. We're taking the land for a border wall. So my, my fear with some of the, with what you're mm -hmm. talking about is that prior individuals that hate Trump mm -hmm. that used to be in positions of power, mm -hmm. they would use similar arguments that you're using, say we can run government better. Right. But it would be for more kind of corporatist, international, globalist aims. Yeah. I'm not I'm not really, you know, my thesis here is not reliant at all on the idea that there's this technocratic benefit to using government power mm -hmm. to achieve conservative ends. Instead, it's, it would be we have the power. We might as well use it while yeah, we can. Right. We, we have the power. We, we have to use it while we can to ensure that we are able to continue to have power in the future. Our country. Our country. Right. And, and to preserve basic aspects. I mean, if. You know, and then there are times when if you aren't willing to use government power to fix serious problems that people are dealing with, um, then the other side will get up and say, I'm willing to use that power to do this good for you. I mean, and, and that would be something like, you know, if, if we were to say, well, the government should have absolutely done done no bailout for the coronavirus. You know, in my view, that's a, the coronavirus and the shutdowns were effectively a regulatory taking. And, you know, under a country when you have when you yeah. take property you need under to the Fifth it. Amendment, under the Fifth Amendment. Right. They, I don't know if that actually would be the legal conclusion the court would draw, but that's the way I think about it. Like the government is saying, for the benefit of the public, you need to shut down your business. We should think of that as a taking where the mm -hmm. government is saying you can't use your property and that therefore you're entitled to some compensation. And if we were to say, oh, no bailouts, no whatever, and the liberals and would get up and say, well, actually, I think we should give some money to people who can't you know, operate their business now, we would find ourselves in a very difficult position. 
When running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and more. And HR manager salaries are not cheap. They're an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding the terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance? Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash Kirk right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash Kirk. Spell BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash Kirk. I see a lot of energy around this kind of new conservatism. Yeah. And I find it exciting. I find it uh, fun in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Some of it is dangerous if it gets into we can run government better than they can. And I'm I'm not saying you're proposing that. If it gets if it descends into a technocratic kind of ruling class ideology. Yeah. But so concretely, let's talk about some specific things that you believe in that the movement should embrace. Yeah. Seize the endowments, I think, is fun and provocative. Right. I think it's wildly unrealistic, but sure. I think it opens up a broader indictment of the academy, which I love. Yeah, exactly. The fact that we have these four-year institutions that are nothing more than degree-peddling, anti-American indoctrination camps where our ruling class then voluntarily gives away tens of hundreds of billions of dollars back to them yeah. so they can keep on destroying our country from within. Right. So I think that's a very interesting yeah. – so what, what, what else – you were this kind of new make America great again, Trump populism – Right. What um, do you think we're missing? So uh, one big piece that I've started to push on lately is the idea that we need to it's, – it's sort of off of what Trump has talked about, opening up the libel laws. Um, it should be a major conservative goal to overturn the New York Times versus Sullivan case. So, which, so let's talk about what that sure. is. Sure. So that's the, the case that radically changed defamation law in this country to say that if you defame a public figure, you lie about them in a way that causes them damage, you can't be held liable unless you had what's called actual malice. And the legal term for that, that's not anger, right? Mal, you know, I was angry at you, malicious. That's not it. It's did you knowingly lie about someone? And that might seem, oh, that might seem fair, but think about what that's like in a court of law. Proving that someone knowingly lied with evidence is very, very challenging and basically excludes a whole bunch of defamation lawsuits. And by changing the law in this way, we, we put a, effectively a tax on fake news and a tax on lying about people. Because right now, the people who are essentially the victims having their reputations smeared are with that are the ones who just they just bear the cost of that and the and the media outlets who lie about them and you know like think about the New York Times lying about Brett Kavanaugh et cetera causing so much damage to his families and totally about horrible abhorrent things and they accrued a ton of financial benefit from that they're like polluters you know and and in the sense or uh, you know people who make faulty products and then there's an incredible amount of collateral damage yeah huge amount of collateral damage and I think that you know, part of our country's tradition is the idea that, I mean, like libel and free speech coexisted for 200 years. You know, I mean, the, if you had asked the founders, like, does the First Amendment mean that you can't sue somebody for libel? They'd been like, what? Of course you can. That's mean that. And it's everywhere. In the and it was even more important back then. The printing press was everything. Oh, yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, our law comes from the English common law and you know, there were libel, tons of libel suits. I mean, the, the big difference was that we said you can't sue somebody for libel for something that is, in fact, true. Right. Truth is a defense to libel. That was actually a, a novel claim in American law. So that's the way we've sort of bridged the gap on freedom of speech. But 
I don't think it should just give permission to lie about people in a way that causes them damage and then say, well, you had to prove that I knowingly lied to win in court. It's like, no, uh, you know, you, they, you know, they're innocent in the sense they had nothing to do with it. And all of a sudden their reputation is. And all they had damaged. to do was have one other fact witness that would be lying to say, well, I didn't knowingly lie because I, the, the person that was informing me. Yeah. I thought was telling the truth. Yeah, I, I thought he was telling the truth. I had, you know, good faith belief that it was true. Okay. Well, I mean, maybe with something like accusing Brett Kavanaugh of the horrible things he was accused of, maybe you should have a little more than that. Maybe that reasonable care, you know, which mm -hmm. that's the standard for negligence and, and the standard that applies to private citizens. Maybe that should apply to the New York Times with regard to public citizens too. So this goes back to what guides you operatively where you say we can't lose. Yeah. We can't have self-defeating principles. Right. We have to win. Right. And, and part of that is, okay, the mainstream media is completely aligned against the conservative movement. It's an activist media. It's an activist media. I mean, the, the sort of justification for the things protecting them from these libel lawsuits is they're doing this incredibly noble good that's not kind of nonpartisan and serving the public good. Well, the New York Times isn't doing that. They're, they're a completely partisan rag now. Why should they have a benefit, uh, essentially a legal benefit unique to one particular type of tort that's not present in the rest of tort law? I, I don't think that's true. And in a sense, that's using government because it's expanding the scope mm -hmm. of potential litigation that could be brought by private citizens in the court system. Would, would you, but so you say that we as conservatives can't, we have to focus on winning. Yes. What does victory look like? Is well, it a political I mean, victory? Is it so cultural victory? Me, I, I kind of define it like an a ideological shift among Democrats. So think about what happened to the, the, I don't know if you're familiar with British politics in their history. Somewhat. Okay, so Enough you know, to be under dangerous. Thatcher, basically, the conservatives won like three or four elections in a row. And before that, the Labor Party was a straight-up socialist party. And there was like the, the longest suicide note in history was what their platform was called in 1984 when Thatcher won a landslide. And the idea was then they went to Tony Blair and became like moderate and centrist and thought, you know, came back to some sort of consensus again. So that to me, that's what victory looks like. You beat the other side enough in enough elections that essentially the party has its own internal revolution where it is no longer so incredibly adversarial. And that almost happened in 18. Yeah. Where they had some moderates and. Right some radicals all simultaneous in the house yeah. almost um, but you know we're, we're currently not in that environment i mean you, you think about the fact that you know 2000 former doj lawyers are signing a petition to throw a man in jail despite the fact that doj has said he he's exonerated he can't prove the crime beyond a reasonable doubt of course i'm referring to uh, lieutenant general flynn um and they're 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 bloodthirsty almost and trying to put him in jail would you would you argue that we should win at all costs no no um because there are people that believe that. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, that means, you know, that ultimately there have to be some, there has to be some willingness to say, like, there are things I won't do. Like, I think, you know, willing to, being willing to break the law is, is one of them that I think is obviously not something. The left doesn't believe that, though. Right. I mean, and, and that's kind of the problem. That's why we're in this sort of adversarial environment. We need to, I want to see the left beaten in, in enough times that that strain of the left where this, this sort of absolute ruthlessness willingness to use and excuse the abuse of government power um, to defeat the right. I want to see that gone. I want them to, and I want them to return to a much more na classical national patriotic democratic party, which I think you could, even if you didn't like what the Democrats are doing and say, even the early nineties, that the party of Clinton is not, a, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, of Bill Clinton and that policy platform is nothing like what we see today. And, and but the issue though, is that because we've lost culture so much, the institutions have created an entire Democrat party that might be irreversible, that it hates our be. country. It might be. They hate everything we stand for. They hate our flag. They hate our symbology. They hate our history. They hate everything. Mm -hmm. and, and they want to destroy it from within. So you put that aside, though, and so, so you're, you're, you're focused on we as conservatives need to achieve victory again and yeah. achieve 
essentially winning. The president has really brought that back. Yes. And I think this is a, this is a, a complete difference from Buckleyite conservative. Yes. Conservatism. Because Buckley used to say, they used to say, well, what would you do if you, if you found out you won the election? He'd say, I'd demand a recount. Mm-hmm. Basically, there's no way I could possibly be a majoritarian with believing what I believe. Mm-hmm. But you don't hold that view. No. Um, I, I think it's important to account for what the majority thinks. They elected you. You have an obligation to them uh, and to, to support them, I think. And that also kind of coheres with what I think about why nationalism is so good for the right in general. The idea that you know we should care about American citizens more than we care about people who are not Americans. I mean, in the same way that we care more about our family than are the members of our community, that we care more about our community than we do the country as a whole that I think it's very natural and good for you to have kind of concentric circles of care and that for Americans to care about other Americans and their interests. And that also to manifest in how we think about policy. Because, um, you know, I remember like the, when the really libertarian and, and kind of business-oriented Republicans would say, why should I care more about a stranger in Juarez or Beijing uh, than I do about a stranger in Detroit? And to me, the answer is because they're American, they're part of your nation. Mm-hmm. You should absolutely care more about the... How do you, how do, how do you define... What would an American is? Because um, this is now on referendum. Right. So, this, yeah. This shouldn't be a controversial thing. So, you know, interest, I probably have a more controversial view of this than some do. I, I'm a, I'm a, I think that essentially uh, nations are what I think Benedict Anderson used the term imagined communities, and that sounds worse than it is. Uh, the idea being that um, p- part of being an American is a sort of self-conception of identity to conceive of oneself as American. And... Uh, as a result, that's not reliant on you know, race or creed or anything like that. But it is, it is, it is sort of, you know, the, there is essentially this, this key self-conception, and, and that's fostered by the fact that we are all in this community together, um, reading the same things in the same language, uh, and have the same sort of cultural touchstones, and that, and that ultimately, and the same historical understandings. Mm-hmm. Um, those things bring us together in Americans. And I mean, there are obviously particular beliefs, like in the value of the Constitution and freedom of speech and the Bill of Rights that are key values to what I would think being an American entails. Um, but I wouldn't be, you know, I, I have no time for like the bizarre, like, you know, like race theories that would, of nationalism. Yeah. I think they're ridiculous. Well, and I, and I, I generally agree with that. And I think that some of our immigration mm-hmm. policies have mm-hmm. been self-defeating. I yes. Mean, and, and so you see in states like Virginia and many other states, the New York Times openly admitting that the, the unlimited immigration policies, legal immigration, not just right. illegal through the just ridiculous issuance of, you know, immig- immigra- granting immigration to individuals actually brings people so quickly into our country that don't necessarily share that national ethos. Agreed. And or that don't have the, you know, aren't going to feel like they're part of the country when they're here. Right. I mean, part of think about like the public charge rule, for instance, it says if we're going to have someone immigrate to this country, they should be able to sustain themselves. They should not have to rely on public benefits. Well, that's that's part of you are going to come here to be a contributing member of society and conceptualize yourself as this contributing person um, rather than someone who is here to use the system that has yes. been provided for you. And I, I think that... And that's a distinctly different... We used to view immigration that way. Yeah. Where it's, you almost had to earn earn your way into the country. Right. You, you had to assimilate. You had to speak the language. Yeah. And it's completely different now. And it, it's also as if you see the left, they view immigration now as a way to accomplish deeply held political yeah. objectives. Sure. Because they know if they can continue the trajectory of people that don't necessarily appreciate the country right all of a sudden they, they will vote democrat yeah, inevitably. A durable majority whereas the republicans like oh this is wonderful for expanding gdp and purchasing you know capacity yeah. and for cheap labor and maximum utility of the market 
Right. Which I reject both those things. Yeah, I agree. Although I, I do think it's interesting. There's the way that the left use the government. It's almost like it's a charity, right? It's like a nonprofit, and we're the and American citizens are donors to this charity. This job and the That's charity is to do good around the world. Whereas I think the conservative nationalist view would say no. The the government is like a corporation, and the citizens are shareholders. And if you would dilute the shareholder value, like you 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 actually the goal of the company is to maximize shareholder value, maximize what it value of being a citizen. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a much healthier way for us to view government because, I mean, when you're talking about taxation, I mean, that's that's not voluntary and that, that shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be viewing that the government as a charity. This job is to do good all over the world. Yes. PCmatic is a whitelist next generation antivirus software designed to stop modern threats like ransomware. Independent testing, AV test, just named PCmatic as a top performer in the cybersecurity industry, giving it the best performance award for 2019. Only PCmatic has American research development and support. PCmatic's competition is made in foreign countries where many of the viruses originate. You need to build the wall around your, your computer. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard and the Chinese Communist Party are coming for your computer right now. Do something about it and build the wall. It's PCmatic.com slash Charlie. PCmatic is just $50 for five devices for one year with a 30 day money back guarantee and if you act now pc matic has officially offered my listeners a free month of security protection with the purchase of an annual license to accept this offer go to pcmatic.com slash charlie that's pcmatic.com slash charlie build the wall keep people out of your computer protect yourself pcmatic.com slash charlie where do you see the conservative movement going then in the next couple of years? Because I see that there's going to be a divergence here mm -hmm. of people that don't necessarily hold these views as yours. Of right. yours. I mean, I think that ultimately there's people will there's been such a dramatic move towards kind of the populist nationalism of Trump. Do you think that's healthy? Yes, I absolutely do think it's healthy. Um, I think it's healthy both as a political movement to integrate a large um, chunk of people who probably wouldn't have thought about voting Republican before. Um, I mean, you're talking about the Rust Belt states that Republicans didn't win for 20 years and we're suddenly winning them again. Um, that's, you know, as a matter of politics, we should have a platform that can win because winning is important because the left is out to destroy us. Um, so that's part one. And then part two is I think it's it's healthy generally um, because it reminds us that we do have obligations to our fellow citizens and that um, the idea that government would care about the well-being of our fellow citizens and, and not be completely indifferent to the struggles of the working class at the expense of GDP. Like, I think that's, that's a very, very good thing, very important, and a really welcome shift. Whereas in the, the, the predominant view of Republican ideology the last 30 years has not been that. Right. I would say, I would say not. I think that it's... It's been very technocratic. It's been very programmed towards a very needs wants of a, the, the, almost the ruling class elite. Right. And, and sort of like you... And you it's, have, it's hypnotizing at times to believe in some of the things that, they, that yeah, they've said. I mean, I think, I mean, I came, I mean, I think we, we talked about this a little yesterday, but we both kind of came from that, like reading the you know journals like Cato and... and, and yeah, like everything they say must be true because of comparative advantage and all these things. Yeah. And then you look materially around the country and you say, wait a second, why do we keep on importing all this garbage from China? We have garages full of stuff right. I've never used. We sell for a dollar and beg people to take out of our home every five years. We do a garage sale right. of plastics and textiles we've never used, don't appreciate, and don't wear. Meanwhile, the manufacturing facility down the street is closed. Did, yeah. Are we winning in this scenario? No, I mean, and, and, and it's it's almost as if you dare question mm -hmm. this inter this international trade, mm -hmm. essentially paradigm that's been created they all of a sudden throw you out and you say oh you're anti-market you're anti-capitalism it was right. not that simple actually. no it's not i mean that there's 
you know, it's it, this is actually a very like pro work in, in the virtues of work. Right. We think about and, and you well, could believe in that without being a Marxist. Right. Yeah. You can think about I mean, if anything, the Marxists want like permanent UBI for everybody and, and just correct, you know, and no one to be working like part of the insight of, I think, the capitalist thinkers is often saying there's a virtue and value to work and being able to provide for yourself and your family. It's a part of living a good life. But you, but you and I also rank the well-being of the country above the well-being of a specific economic future yes. for the elites. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm pretty indifferent to whether or not there's another zero on Mark Zuckerberg's bank account. Yeah. I mean, the question is whether or not, like, how is the country doing? Now, that's not to say we need this massive government program and infrastructure. No, but I, I think generally markets help the country. And that, that's where you and I, we totally agree on that. Private Agreed. property rights and entrepreneurship. Yeah. However, the, the, further, the further extrapolation of the, the globalization mm -hmm. of our economy, I, I think we've gone way past anything that's advantaged America. Yeah. Oh, totally agreed. Totally agreed. Um, you know, I mean, at the point that all your factories are shutting down and your jobs are getting outsourced to country to China, um, and that's leading to the dissolution of these communities, drug abuse. I mean, those are problems that you know you have to care about, and they maybe don't show up in GDP, but you need to account for. But they 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 might in the sense that what is the long term tax burden on workers hmm. or producers like you and I every time a manufacturing plant shuts down? That right. means the local school has less revenues. Mm -hmm. That means the local park district has less revenues. Mm -hmm. That means the community has less vibrancy and less life. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to go on government benefits, the entire community. Mm -hmm. Their children are less likely to succeed and thrive. Right. They're more likely to go into debt, to go to college, to hate America. It almost as if it, it's a self-reinforcing loop mm -hmm. that is created. If you wanted to destroy America, it's a beautiful ingredient to do that. Ship 8 sure. million jobs overseas to a country that hates us. And also, I mean, then you wake up and realize, like, hey, we need to produce masks domestically. How do we do that? Or vitamin C. Right. Or ibuprofen. Oh, wait, it's all made by the country that hates us. Yeah. That seems like an obvious problem. That is a very, very serious national security and sovereignty issue. I mean, we're not even talking about economics anymore. This is, you know, I mean, our foreign policy is constrained by the fact that right now China can shut off a, a huge supply of medicines that we need. And that we, we, it would take some time to put that back together if we were in a position where they, they weren't Well, and it. it's kind of one of those things, you know, I have these debates with people on the very, very, very committed libertarian community. Mm -hmm. And I, I could play nicely with the liberty folks on certain things, on foreign policy and things sure. like that. But they say, well, you don't understand. It will, you, you have to pay more for vitamin C here. So mm -hmm. I'm happy to pay $5 more for vitamin C if that doesn't mean the Chinese Communist Party's not making right. it. And they, they can't restrict our supply chains and I mean, they can't steal our intellectual property i mean that's when you think about it that's basically an argument against uh, that's an argument against all taxation and all government action right you have to pay a little more right? well and and that's the thing is some people say well a tariff is a tax so i completely agree yes i'd rather pay a tariff tax than payroll tax sales tax local local property tax mm -hmm. federal income tax to subsidize the casualties and the carnage that you caused so you can just try to make the excuse that the tariff is a tax. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, like, where do you want to pay the taxes? At what point do you want to pay the taxes? I'd so much that... rather have the Chinese Communist Party pay the taxes. Sure, exactly. Or a little bit of an increase of the imported product, or whatever imported product that they say we need. Right. And I'm not convinced, what does China make that we need? See, there, there, there's two ways to view trade, and it's blurred a lot by the international economists, mm -hmm. of which I have a lot of respect for a lot of these people, in theory. Mm -hmm. I think their XY charts make a lot of sense on boards. Mm -hmm. But it's either you trade with someone because they can do something you cannot do or they can do it cheaper. Mm -hmm. So that's two completely different ways to view it, to compartmentalize it. 
China does nothing we cannot do. Agreed. They only do it cheaper. Yeah. So, for example, we don't buy natural resources for them or they don't make something that we simply cannot make. We make stuff they can't make. Right. Agriculture, food, mm. energy, intellectual property. I mean, we're an incredibly wealthy country in terms of our own natural resources. I mean, remember when we had to be dependent on the Middle East for oil? It's not even true anymore. We're energy independent. Um, we can build, I mean, we have incredible manufacturing skill here. We just need to actually care that it exists. And I mean, that's a that's part, again, of being self-reliant enough in, in a world where, you know, Fukuyama said there was going to be an end of history and everybody was going to be a democratic nation state. China decided that was wrong. Um, and one person deciding that was wrong is enough. Well, and, and also, well, I would love your thoughts on this. How many times do you and I hear over the last decade as we got started in the conservative movement, you, you're a little older than I am, but the more we trade to China, the more Western they're going to become? Oh, yeah. No, that, that, that was, you know, basically almost the theological belief. And it was flat wrong, just flat wrong. Um, and everybody who advocated it, you know, there's, there's sort of, I, I want people to check their premises when they get big major predictions wrong. I'm a big believer, you know, when you make public predictions, you should bet on them. And that's, that's sort of, a, it's like a tax mm. on getting things wrong. You know, I, whenever I would, you know, I, there's a reason I bet on Trump winning the election. Um, and I, I actually, my best bet that I ever made in politics was when I bet that Ralph Northam would keep his seat as Virginia governor. Everybody, and that was like, I got like five to one on that bet. Everybody was saying, oh, he'll have to resign. He'll have to resign. He didn't have to resign. Turns out they couldn't impeach him, so he stayed in power. Put your money where your mouth is. Exactly. Um, and like we have a, a, a punditry class where it's like we make these outlandish predictions or, or predictions that are really consequential um, or advocate policies that are really consequential, harm a lot of people's lives, and then there's no consequence to the pundit. There's no skin in the game. There's not, there's not even a suggestion that they, you know, maybe figure out why they're wrong or in the really worst case, retire from public life. Or, 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 or no clarification for course correction. Yeah. None. Right. No, oh, this is why I believe what I did, and here's where I got it wrong, and I'm going to try to be better in this sense. Yeah, there's no, it's, it's, I think somebody, it's not, the marketplace of ideas isn't really a market because you don't bear the cost when you lose. Yeah, unless you're a conservative, then they will, yeah. they, will, they will hold you accountable. <laughs> well, well, then it's a rigged market against you. No That's right. What. So we'll be taking some questions too. You guys can email us, freedom at charliekirk.com, and make sure you're subscribed to the Charlie Kirk Show. Type in Charlie Kirk, Kirk Show to your podcast provider. Hit subscribe. So um, you're big into the Flynn case. Yes. You probably know this better than almost anyone. And I picked your brain for about two hours last night. Yeah, that was fun. Um, yeah, no, the Flynn case is, is remarkable. I've been following it since, uh, you know, I think 2017, 2018. Uh, and, I mean, especially, like, the, the, the sort of twist and turn that's going to make a great book that hopefully I'll be the one to write. Um, but the, I mean, the big news lately is that, obviously, DOJ dismissed, uh, moved to dismiss the indictment of Michael Flynn mm -hmm. on the grounds that, they couldn't prove the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, they didn't have evidence that anything Flynn said was material to an FBI investigation, and they didn't have evidence uh, that he actually, they weren't confident that they could prove he made a false statement to uh, the FBI agents. Um, and despite that, uh, the judge in the case has invited an amicus in. Um, a a friend of the court? Friend of the court. Um, so he, a, a former federal judge, now in private practice, and John Gleason, and he's invited him in to argue that the case should not be dismissed, um, and that, uh, or perhaps that Mr. Flynn should be held in contempt. Um, Which is, yeah, sorry, but can you explain what that would, that would be the judge basically then almost acting like a prosecutor. Right. Almost. Almost, right. So there is an inherent contempt power that judges have. So say if you go to a courtroom and there's a trial and you start yelling and screaming and then the judge is like, stop doing that. And you're like, no. And you keep yelling and screaming. Well, the judge at a certain point will order the bailiff to put, hold, will hold you in contempt and, you know, put you in jail for the moment. Right. So that you stop yelling and screaming and let the trial happen. Um, if you refuse to testify when you're under subpoena, like Chelsea Manning, for example, refused to testify at a grand jury, 
you can be held in contempt because you are obstructing a court proceeding. The jurisdiction of the courtroom is yeah. the judges. The jurisdiction it's, of the courtroom is the judges. Exactly. Domain. So there's basically what Judge Sullivan is thinking, at least on contempt, is I think he says, as best as I can tell, uh, General Flynn might have perjured himself because he previously pled guilty and said that he did this offense under oath, and now he's saying he didn't. So not only is that question one, is that perjury, and then question two, can I as the judge hold him in contempt for lying to me in my courtroom under that theory? Um, now, I actually didn't know the answer to this question until this morning because I had, had never had time to really do the research. Um, but it seems pretty clear the answer to that is no because it's not, there's a Supreme Court case, oddly enough, where somebody considered is perjury enough to find someone in contempt? And the answer is no because you actually have to obstruct the proceeding somehow. It's which not, Flynn did not which do. Which Flynn materially did not do. no way. Right. So that's not a close question. And then that's combined with the fact that this whole idea that Judge Sullivan could not dismiss the indictment, I mean, that's just absolute nonsense. There's binding precedent um, for both the Supreme Court and the D.C. Circuit. Because there's no prosecution. The government it's the has separation the of case. powers. It's this, you know, you know, there's the executive branch. They prosecute. The, the judge ju oversees the proceedings. Yeah. He's a neutral arbiter. He's not a prosecutor. So, but so there's really very few cards he can play. Right. And no matter how much he hates Flynn, and no matter how much he's right. compelled to act. Right. There, there are thorny questions in the law. These are not thorny questions. These are really simple questions. Is this amicus brief going to kind of be a kind of like a John Galt speech or something of the sense where I'm going to just prove to the world why he should? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, I think, honestly, I, I think the, the, uh, the odds that Flynn actually ends up in jail are so vanishingly low as to be almost irrelevant. I mean, even if Judge Sullivan tries to refuse to dismiss the case, proceed to sentencing, I think he'll, that'll get reversed almost immediately mm -hmm. by the D.C. Circuit, given the law. Um, I think what they might be trying to do is sort of delay. Uh, I saw that uh, the, the amicus, uh, former Judge Gleason, came out today and said, I'm going to file a brief, are making these arguments by June 10th, but I also am going to explain whether or not I need to make, to do factual development, interview people. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, that can take a while. You know, go to getting depositions set up, whether people can be there at the same time, and all of a sudden you're going to be past November and perhaps into a Democratic administration. Um, as much as I hope that's, def hope that's not the case. But that's and what they're aiming for. And so 2,000 lawyers or former DOJ employees did yeah. what? They signed on to a letter? They signed on to a letter that said, Judge, you know, what Attorney General Barr did is beyond the pale, you know, just looking at the evidence and deciding there was no crime, that that was somehow beyond the pale. These are, these are people who are liberals, right, who think that criminal justice reform is good and that prosecutorial abuse is bad. Um, just to clarify for everyone, they're liberals. Uh, liberals. They're the ones that are always talking about getting rid of mandatory minimums yeah. and get, getting judges not to be able to have as much discretion in sentencing, right? Sentencing reform's a big yeah. one, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, there's a Netflix show about the Innocence Project and all the people they've found who were, you know, wrongfully convicted and how heroic it is to the get The only them difference is if you're in the proximity of Donald Trump, these yeah. people are lock them up and throw the key away. Exactly. Uh, they are the harshest, let's, let's pursue the most draconian <laughs> punishment imaginable. Right. Like it's just it's like punish the wrong thinker and and all of a sudden they they just sound Sounds they like sound Socrates. like the hardest of hardest on crime people from the nineties like lock them up throw away the key it's the but only they're, way they're to super deal predators. yeah that's right it's the only way to deal with the super predators that those three star generals are doing so much damage to our country yeah you know there's no no reason no logic sorry um, I wish I had that Hillary Clinton you know that video where she's talking about super predators that would be too funny. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, what's certainly not funny is the fact that, you know, 2,000 former DOJ employees are, are calling this a massive breach in the rule of law, just like they did in the Stone case when, you know, there was the, the recommendation of sentencing by the prosecutors of seven to nine years, and Bill Barr's like, whoa, 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 three to four, guys, calm down. And all these lawyers got up like, how dare you? I mean, just so people realize, the average rapist in America serves three and a half years right. in prison. Right. And you had these trigger-happy prosecutors yeah. that wanted to go back to their leftist cocktail parties and brag about how they locked up Roger Stone in perpetuity. We finally got him. We've been chasing yeah. him for decades. Right. Meanwhile, rapists yeah. are being released from prison during coronavirus, and third-degree murderers are released after five years with good behavior. Right. It's it's extraordinary. And they they hate people in Trump's orbit far more than sexual criminals yes. in our in our society. Yes. For them in the hierarchy of moral violations, mm -hmm. being around Donald Trump mm -hmm. is so profane. Yes. Helping him and assisting him is such an egregious right. violation of goodness right. in their perverse backwards worldview. Right. That they must make you suffer. I mean it it's you know Trump derangement syndrome and the liberal legal establishment. And and it's you know, when you see those two thousand lawyers, you don't think, man, they must all have a point if all of them agree. It's more well, wow, and, how corrupt were these people? And, and that, that's what's that's what always interests me is that in the climate change debate, they say, Don't you know eight hundred scientists have also I, I say it's somewhat irrelevant if it's eight hundred or if it's two thousand. I mean, the Catholic Church sentenced Galileo to death. It does. It, 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 there was like a thousand people that were contributing to it. That doesn't mean they were right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's you know, like the whole point of science is that it's not there to prove things right, but to prove them wrong. Well, but it, it, it's irrelevant how many people. It's yeah. not a democracy. Yeah, that's not how science works. Science is the least democratic field in that respect. It, it, it's it, not it a takes. Vote of it takes will. the actual proof. It, it takes what's called a proof. Yeah. It, you prove to me using logic, using reason, evidence, or the scientific method why Michael Flynn did what he did without a reasonable doubt. Yeah. And Socratically, you cannot do that. No, no. I mean, there, I mean, we talked about this too, how no, no federal prosecutor in their right mind looking at the Flynn case fresh would ever try and prosecute it because no. the, the false statement, um, you know, or rather the, there's a 302, which is the FBI's record of the interview. That document is supposed to be written within five days and published in like a clean version of what happened in that interview so that you could say, well, clearly General Flynn said this. It went through three weeks of edits with Peter Strzok and Lisa Page doing the editing. And then, and we know they're biased, right? We know they're biased. I mean, imagine a federal prosecutor being like, "Yeah, I'm going to put Peter Strzok on the stand <laughs> as like the person to say, yes, yes, Your Honor, uh, General Flynn lied. He said this. Like that's not, and that's the proof of the false statement. They would, they would never do that. You know, I mean, even federal prosecutors who are very, very aggressive, as we saw here, uh, would not want to take this case to trial. And so Sidney Powell, who's a total hero, yes. she'll be on the upcoming episode of the Charlie Kirk Show. So you guys got to make sure you're subscribed. Email me your questions you want me to ask Sydney Powell, freedom at charliekirk.com. She's been amazing on this. Oh, yeah. No, she's – the funny thing is I, I remember reading – I read her book back in 2014. License to Lie. License to Lie. Great All about book. the Merrill Lynch. Uh, that was part, not, uh, Enron. Was, it was Enron and Arthur Anderson. But Merrill Lynch was involved in what? part of it. There was – they because they, they were the bank oh, that was brokering yeah, the yeah, Enron yeah. barge deal. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's – it's a fascinating book, so – uh, and she knows Andrew Weissman from that. Yes. Yeah, she, I think she had personal experience watching Andrew Weissman litigate cases. 
America is ready to get back to work. But to win in the new economy, you need every advantage to succeed. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need all in one place. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite lets you manage every penny with precision. You'll have the ability to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. NetSuite surveyed hundreds of business leaders and assembled a playbook of the top strategies they're using as America reopens for business. Receive your free guide, seven actions businesses need to take right now. It's great for anybody, whether you're a business owner or not. Go right now to netsuite.com slash Kirk. Get our free guide, your free guide, netsuite.com slash Kirk. Free product tour right now, netsuite.com slash Kirk. That's netsuite.com slash Kirk. Here's what's my, to kind of tie my fear with some of your original comments. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that if we as conservatives get so convinced that we have to win and we don't, we don't prevent ourselves from finishing by winning at all costs. Mm-hmm. We can unintentionally give more power to the Andrew Weissmans and the Strucks and the Pages. Yeah. Does that do you understand my fear? I mean, I, I would be worried about that, you know, but for the fact that that, that already exists. Already happened and I exists. think that's a fair response. You know, that, that this this happened despite conservatives generally being very pro rule of law, very restrained in how they use government power. Um, you know, I mean this is a kind of connects to the argument people make. It's like we have to worry about what precedent we set for Democrats. But at the same time, we say that Democrats do unprecedented things all the time. Yes. Like there's a tension there. The way if we, if we acknowledge that Democrats do unprecedented things, like investigate a candidate on the eve of an election and try and put all his uh, you know, advisors in jail, then maybe we have to realize that you know, the worry about precedent needs to be secondary. I mean, if you can make an overall say that this has real ruined the rule of law and the rule of law is worth preserving, I think that's... But they don't care about the rule of yeah, law. Yeah, but they don't, they don't care about the rule Truth of law. Truth is not a left-wing value. Right. For them, if Flynn did it or not is irrelevant. For them, it's about revenge. And I have a new thesis that I'm exploring, and mm-hmm. I'm gonna, this is my next episode of the Charlie Kirk Show, I'm going to do a 15 or 20 minutes on it, Yeah. which is that young socialists have been have been taught to be so angry and mm. so ungrateful that when we try to make the efficacy argument around socialism, oh, socialism doesn't work, they've never said that it works. Mm-hmm. They say that it's gonna it's gonna invoke pain on the people that we think that have done damage to our country. Yeah. So for example, AOC, I don't think she actually knows if socialism works or doesn't work, nor does she care or does she believe it. But she's actually correct when she says this will this will make people feel pain. Right. That I want to feel pain. And I mean, imagine also then, I mean, this this actually connects back to the university's discussion. I mean, you know, if the same people generally, I mean, you know, who told you that, you know, our system is good, capitalism works, are the same people that said go to college. Right. They're not the professors, but they're the people who that are, are pushing, pushing college and like pushing the value of a college education. And it's like, well, that's a that turned out to be a fraud. Right. And so and now they're immiserated by debt. And capitalism isn't working to get them out of it because the debt is so extreme. Yes. And so, you know, if it's hard to believe in markets when you're eighty thousand dollars in debt at the age of twenty three. Right. It's really hard to believe yeah. in markets. I I somewhat sympathize. With I do. That. I do too. That's where I come from as well on this. I mean, I think you're telling me the free market is the way to solve the problem that I'm now. You know, I basically was the victim of a predatory lender. Yes. Right. Like meanwhile, you know, they're sitting on billions of dollars in cash, and they could have easily have charged me half. 
or gave giving me a full scholarship. Like think about how hard it would be just as an entrepreneur, an 18-year-old entrepreneur to go get a $200,000 loan to start a business. Impossible. But the federal government will give it to you in a moment's in a notice moment's in notice. your basement with no parent co-signing if you decide to go to University of cash. Tennessee. You can't discharge in bankruptcy. That's right. That's so the you're only now an It's the servant. only type of debt you cannot renegotiate in bankruptcy debt right. court. Only type. Why should why do conservatives need to preserve that? What 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 value does that serve? To so that's that? a very interesting point. So we as conservatives talk about conserving the family, conserving yeah. life, conserving liberty, freedom, the country, borders. Mm -hmm. But I actually don't think that institutions of higher learning are even worth preserving at all. Yeah, not in their current form. I mean, my my view is again treat them like the coal companies. Either you know, are, but I oh, like the coal companies. Right. I'm sorry. Treat them like the left Got treats it. the okay. coal companies. Just to clarify. But, you know, their view is... I, I think coal, working in coal mines is actually dignified. Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unlike working as, like, a university professor. Sorry. <laughs> I know there's former professors who will hate that comment. Whatever. Well, there's some good con conservative some... professors out there. Yeah. It's irrelevant to the indictment <laughs> of the institution. Sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's that's the fundamental problem. And I, I think, you know, part of you know the messaging about explaining why socialism doesn't work needs to be accompanied by an understanding that we do acknowledge that there is a problem that you are dealing with as young people and that is a problem of what the our entire system is. So I want to go a deep a level deeper philosophically there, though, yeah. where I think a lot of conservatives overplay the hand of self-reliance. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a huge, and we'll get into stoicism and all that yeah. as a bookend of this, but I want to get into this first. I'm a huge proponent of you are the master of your own destiny. Make good choices. You will succeed. Meritocracy. But I think what I mean we overplay our hands is we dismiss actual pain that young people are feeling. Right. Because of poor policies that are created. Now, I don't think that's an excuse of why you should be inactive mm -hmm. or why you should seek government assistance. I, that's not what I'm saying at all. But some conservatives will say, well, so what? Yeah. You made that choice. Own up to it. And I say, wait a second. They were fed. They were fed a stream of lies and mistruths and untruths mm -hmm. to go one hundred twenty thousand dollars in debt. There's now 30 million people out of work. Internships, prom and commencement are all canceled. They want to continue to issue H-1B visas and all these visas that will continue to dilute the labor pool for our own workers and our own graduates. This is kind of rigged against students and young people. And the failure to recognize that as conservatives is just say, well, just pull yourself up. You can do a good job of it, of which I support. I, I, don't, sure. I don't think it's an excuse not to do that. Right. But to not also say, well, there's some really backwards and foolish policies that are being in place. Yeah. Like fraud is not a conservative value, right? Like. Self-reliance is, but fraud is not. And when you say somebody to, to someone who is the victim of fraud, it's, oh, you shouldn't, have, you shouldn't have been defrauded. And that's, we're not going to talk about the fraudster. That's kind of where a lot of conservatives have yep. been the last 20 years. Agreed. And, and I want that to stop. I think it's really important that it stop. Um, and I think it's not just colleges, though. It's yeah. also some of these other industries that I find to be less than glamorous. Sure. You know, I mean, I think we should, as conservatives, should say the part of what makes capitalism work is that we punish fraud. You know, I actually have an interesting thesis about, for example, why it, one of the reasons that people don't talk about why it would be terrible to have nationalized healthcare, and why it's really important that private companies keep doing it, because private companies get punished if they lie. Every three months, they have to go to their investors and tell the truth about their finances. Yes. And government doesn't do that. Government can lie. The government can't force itself to tell the truth easily. That's a much better argument than the utility argument that yeah. does not resonate with students. Right. You know. And, and so to go back, what I was saying, though, is that the left is winning a lot of young people. Mm -hmm. Not and, and this is what I try to this is why I try to convey to adults. They say, "Well, don't students see that Venezuela and all, all these other countries don't work?" I say they don't care about things working. Mm -hmm. They want revenge. Right. They want heads on a stick. 
because they're $90,000 in debt. Mm -hmm. They have no social mobility. They're living in crammed urban centers that are quite honestly, I think, culturally, socially, and spiritually depressing. And they have very little hope. And there is AOC or Rashida Tlaib or Elon Omar or Bernie Sanders who says, it's not that I'm going to create a better future for you. That's a secondary. It's I'm going to make them pay. Yeah. And I'm going to wipe out your college debt, too. I mean, also just think about that from a selfish perspective. Somebody says you're you're a hundred thousand dollars in debt with no idea how you're going to pay it off, and one politician gets up and says, "I'm going to wipe that out." That that's that's a lot that resonates yeah. a lot more with, yeah, students than I think some conservatives in the intellectual community recognize. Yeah, and so what I my, what I'm proposing though, and it's dangerous. And I, I had this disagreement with Congressman Crenshaw mm-hmm. where he says, "Well, Charlie, we can't get into the rebellion politics." I said, "Well, no." We should we should be leading the rebellion against mm-hmm. the kingdom of Washington D.C. Sure, it is the worst city in the on the planet. Eight out of ten of the wealthiest count. I know you live there. Eight out of ten of the wealthiest counties in the and the country are around Washington D.C. They don't produce anything. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a fraud scheme where they put a gun at your head and you have to send your money to D.C. And so I think that we shouldn't allow the left to dominate this. And I hate the word revenge because it sounds so unbiblical and mm-hmm. it sounds so immoral, but accountability or justice yeah no that's what does that make sense what i'm saying because they say social justice environmental justice intergenerational justice i think that's nonsense but what about a college that said yeah just come here and give go two hundred thousand dollars in debt and your life will be better Mm -hmm. yeah we we should look at that as fraud use the language of fraud like seize the endowments um and and call it what it is and i think that if conservatives start doing that i think it's a it's a very populist message and it, it, it opens the window for us to really radically change the way our university system is structured and, and then also fix the fact that so many kids are in debt and therefore not really persuaded by these arguments about how terrible socialism is in Venezuela. And we will never win those arguments as long as our generation has no – you can't sell capitalism to a generation that has no capital. Yeah, agreed. I mean, agreed. They have nothing but liabilities. Yeah, that, yeah, that massive negative net worth really does paint a, a bleak picture of capitalism. And in every other industry, when people have fail or do something wrong, they can declare bankruptcy and get some kind of reset and start over. And that's that's a feature, right? It, it enables experimentation. Like, so why is it that you can't do that? Is it just the law, or I mean, is there a it's real the law? Thank you, Joe Biden. So you're a lawyer. Yeah. Argue the opposite. What would be their reasoning for not doing that? Their reasoning is it could be exploited if if you could declare bankruptcy too soon. Then you could I mean kids all come out of college at, with negative net worth. So if you could declare bankruptcy right away, then there's no reason to pay off your student debt, and it'll be bad for our finances. So what about a time window? What about five years? I mean, maybe they'll be like, well, then you'll just pay the minimum for five years, and then have it forgiven the way people do. So with then what's your service. counterargument to that? Though? My counterargument to that is, uh, it's not in your best interest to declare bankruptcy right. ever anyway. Like exactly, it's not in your best interest to declare bankruptcy, and also like we fine like change. We need to change the institutional structure of the universities. Like if suddenly that getting a loan to go to university is far more expensive. Mm-hmm because people are not getting value out of it, then maybe the university system will radically change to try and give that. Well, and to use that logic, then people would be declaring bankruptcy all the time for for home loans and car loans. Yeah, that too. Outside, but I guess what you're saying, though, is that the student is the asset. There's no collateralization that right. can happen. I guess that would be the counter argument, right? right. And, and for, for example, if you have a house, the bank can assume the asset. You can't assume a human being. Yeah, no, I you guess. can't do that. I mean, so yeah, that would, that's, yeah, that would be the best argument. Because there's no, collateral. there's no collateral. So it can't right. Be so if you're looking at it from the bank issuer standpoint, right. But I mean, I think the you know the ultimate the counter to that from the conservative perspective is why do you know because the, the underlying thesis there is well we need to pre- the existing university system is okay 
and we should preserve it and make sure that students are able to go to it. And it's, it's a bad thing if they can't go because loans are too unaffordable. Well, and, and this is what people don't recognize is that people say, well, you have to go to four-year college to succeed because your earnings are better in the future. But first of all, that's untrue. But let's take it at its face value. Do you know what the national graduation rate is? Mm-hmm. 59%. Yeah. That means 41% of people that go to college won't even graduate. Right. So you're talking about a pool of people that are in debt, that graduate, that learn to hate America. But what about the people that drop out? What does that do to your confidence? Oh, yeah. What does that do to your worldview? What does that do to your earning potential? So you have 41% of people that go to college that go into debt and then drop out and they're in this strange generational purgatory Yeah, where their other friends are still at college acting as if they're succeeding when they might not be. Their other friends that might want a two-year technical, went to two-year technical school, police, firefighter, you know, entrepreneur, take a gap year, military, all of a sudden there's this huge bifurcation. Right. And that makes a perfect potential socialist. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and you, I mean, breeds resentment, like be feeling blocked out of all these things because of the credentialism. One joke I've made is a good way to destroy the university system is just to use the employment discrimination laws, ban discriminating on the basis of whether or not you have a college degree. Right. All of a sudden, I mean, I, you know, I have a lot of fun uh, with the idea that, you know, literally in the same way that employers couldn't ask you about various other questions like your religious beliefs, they're just not allowed to ask you whether you have a college degree or not. And all of a sudden, the credentialing value. Because think about it. Like, I think many, that's brilliant. So, so walk me through that again. So okay. same I can't ask. So for when I'm hiring someone at Turning Point USA, yeah. I'm not allowed to ask them what their religion is. Right. By law. By law. Yeah. That would be discriminatory. So now there's a new thing that's added to the law, which says you're not allowed to ask them about any educational degrees <laughs> they've got. And it's sort of, it's ridiculous, but it also. But the applicant could tell you voluntarily. Sure. They could. But if you're not. Yeah. If they're so proud of going to Yale. Yeah, exactly. Someone that goes to Yale will right. tell they're you They're not barred from telling they you. They will tell you every five minutes. You know how you know how someone you know how you know someone went to Harvard? They say they went to a school in Boston. Well just say they just 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 wait five <laughs> minutes, they'll tell you. I've never I've never met anyone that went to Harvard that hasn't told me within five minutes. And again, you know, when I was at Harvard, like I, I got it. Yeah. You overachieved on standard placement tests. Right. Yeah. But you went to one of the best schools in the world, yeah, Georgetown Law. Yeah, no. I and do. yet you're an opponent to this system. Yeah. So I think you have unique credibility to it. Yeah, I mean, I mean I've seen a lot of it i don't i know what i mean think about how many times a, a kid skips a class right now if, if the class was adding value that would be completely irrational it costs like 500 bucks every unit but you skip class all the time kids skip it all the time why because the point is not the learning the point is the credential mm. like that's it wouldn't be rational to skip it yeah if it were adding so much value to your life but it is, that's not why you need the credential. So you, you know, and think about all the attendance requirements that all these universities put on the kids. And I mean, even with Zoom classes, you know, like you have to show up at this time. If, you know, the funny story about like, I've heard of teachers like blocking the door when kids wanted to go to the restroom, crazy stuff like that. But the um, students are hiring the teachers. That's what we that's, don't realize. Yeah, they're the consumers. Shouldn't they? Yeah. Shouldn't there be, they'd be trying to please the students. It would be like around? saying that you can't get off the Amtrak train, the Acela to New York. You cannot get off in Baltimore. <laughs> paid for this ticket i could voluntarily exit at any time right it's, it's just childish um but it's a very childish system so you guys can email us freedom at charliekirk.com freedom at charliekirk.com so will you also say platform access is a civil right right yeah um, what do you mean by that well I, I basically look at the idea that people should have uh, the same right to speak on facebook and twitter that they do in a public park and i think at least as an aggressive opening bid i'm open to very like minor modifications on that but my view is so much of modern public discourse happens on these two or you know two or three social media platforms, and it is so disruptive to people's lives that to, to meaningfully protect the First Amendment right to speech, people really do need to have some sort of protected right to speak on those platforms. Um, even and, if even if they're spreading things that are materially false. Even if they're spreading things that are materially false. Now there can be like liability 
right? So that's, you know, our law, we don't have prior restraint. The idea being that you can't shut people up before they say something, but you can sue them for damages if what they say causes harm, right? So that's, that's the way I think we should operate. I mean, because what I don't want is a circumstance where, you know, the people who run Twitter and Facebook, they're not our friends. They are progressives. They want to, they want to see our political movement hurt. They don't want to see the less political movement. As this is streaming on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, right. Well, but I mean, uh, you know, they're, they, they, right. But they feel, I mean, they, they worry about government pressure and, and they worry about what the government will do if they act too strongly. And, and I think having that is our basic contention that this should, this should be a right, you know, part of, you know, and, and it comes to the fact that this is not a normal monopoly problem. It's not one where they're trying to use monopoly power to extract So can profits. you, can, can you dive into that? Cause you said something interesting that really yeah. fascinated me. You said it's our monopoly laws were written for consumer exploitation in the early 1900s of vertical monopolization yeah. and controlling the supply chains and potentially exploiting consumers. Right. These monopolies are completely different. It's yeah. almost about like cultural reshaping. Right. It's, I mean, it's about using monopoly power over the, a huge part of the public square to influence politics and shape who's allowed to speak and who's not. That's almost a sovereign power. I mean, and that would be a sovereign power in countries. It's super not government power. Yeah. It's more than our own government power, more power than our own government. Has. So I, let me ask you a question. Who do you think is more powerful, Google or the federal government? Um, I mean, it depends on context. Ultimately, I mean, in terms of shaping public opinion, Google. Uh, and because they control, as you said, they control search. They control what shows up and when you type in search and literally everybody in the country. That's controlling consciousness, isn't yeah, it? Almost. It's controlling how we know things, what we know. Um, how we act. How we act. And who, who, gets to, who gets to talk, who gets to be relevant. I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of power in that. Uh, and... It feels like when when you know conservatives talk about well it's just the fr let the free market do its thing it's like well that that feels pretty sovereign to me that doesn't feel like this doesn't feel like a free competitive market anymore. Well, one of the arguments I use, and I, I'm very Google especially because I think every tech company's in its own vertical. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're all the same because they don't do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think Google's completely different mm -hmm. than Facebook and Twitter, at least right. on the search engine side and the Chrome side. And so I asked the question, so the founding fathers warned about power. Mm -hmm. The biggest power they could conceive of was the federal government. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to restrain that power to preserve individual liberty, individual rights. I mean, could you use that same argument to say the, the, the founding fathers who were so ahead of their time, they look at Google and they say, that's more powerful than our own government. Right. Shouldn't that be constrained? Yeah, that's a real problem. And uh, here's an interesting analogy. So think about like, have you, have you watched Narcos or are familiar with Yeah, them? I mean, I'm familiar with okay. that. I've, I've watched the first episode. So the basic problem that that show really lays out is that the, the drug cartels in Colombia were substantially more powerful than the, feder the governments of those countries. That's correct. Right. And that's a real problem because they're doing something illegal and the government can't has to kind of negotiate with them and can't really stop them. I mean, at one point, Escobar blows a plane out of the sky. So are you comparing the tech companies to only in one respect the cartel <laughs> only in this respect rather that there is a fundamental problem when when companies get so powerful that they're more powerful than the government that is supposed to be sovereign right because then you also get the potential for you actually get potentials for violence when there's a question about who is really sovereign. but I, I think it's even scarier than this will mm -hmm. what if they combine forces oh i mean that's that's the ideal world for them and i mean that's the world the democrats want you know think about the world where they are private companies, but can be influenced by democratic politicians and converge together with, converge the, together. with the levers of government. Right. It's a it's a perfect censorship storm. I mean, I actually thought about this. This is one of my points on platform access. Would conservative speech be safer if Facebook and Twitter were nationalized? Thought experiment. And I think the answer to that is yes. And the reason I'm is, not convinced of that. But here's here's my basic reason. The First Amendment in the courts is actually really robust. Right. Like it's one of the most well-developed areas of law. 
the government is super constrained when it regulates the content of the speech. So, so your argument would be postal service nationalized. They don't prevent anyone from sending a package. Right. So that would be your argument. Right. And I mean, Amtrak nationalized. Universities have to let the worst people in the world speak on their campus. Right. And that's that's binding law. And it's tested. It's been. But if that is the only if that is the only variable for mm -hmm. nationalization. Right. It's not. And, and it, so that's why it's a thought experiment. Efficiency, you know, all those sorts of things that we do want to have right. happen. Right. Um, but the question is, how much more computing power should we try to pursue at the expense of our speech? Yeah. And I think that our speech matters and the ability to say what you want to confidently without worry that your livelihood might be destroyed. I mean, you think about people who, you know, maybe got banned for an errant comment and then they're banned from Twitter and their job was tied to their ability. Can you talk about something you said previously where you said you put all this intellectual investment into it? Yeah. So there's there's another. So there's something there's something in the law called adverse possession, which is the idea that it's in property law. And say you own a piece of land and you let a squatter sit there and you don't do anything to that squatter for 10 years while they just, you know, build a little cabin on your property or whatever. After 10 years, if you go to court and try and get them kicked off, they'll be like, actually, sorry, uh, that, that land now belongs to the trespasser. You never dis disrupted him. You, he spent 10 years mixing his labor with that land. It's now his. That's adverse possession. Um, there's, a, there's a fundamental tension here with when you on a social media platform spend effort and time and energy attracting an audience, you know, with tweeting. Or and persuading people. Persuading people. Them. I mean, that's, you are mixing your labor with that property. You were invited to do so by the company. Without them kicking out you out. Right. And then all of a sudden they can just take that, that thing that you've mixed your labor with so much and just take it from you with no compensation on a whim. I mean, there's a, there's also, there is a property rights angle to this as much as it might seem like we're just regulating private companies, but there's a, there's a pretty good Lockean argument that what the tech companies are currently able to do, they shouldn't be able to do. And you're almost, you're also delivering value to them. Yeah. I mean, you are creating an audience, you're creating content and they're doing nothing but benefiting from you. Right. So for example, when I have 1.7 million Twitter followers and they just decide it to disappear if they ever did that. All that investment, all that time, all the energy in creating that audience, mm -hmm. how do I get reimbursed for that? You don't, but they do get to keep all the money they made off of ad revenue from the little promoted ad they show on your feed. With currently no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be terribly wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, and guess what? NBA is coming back. It's coming back, so you guys have got to get involved with BetOnline.ag. If you miss the NFL, no problem. BetOnline still has daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can wager on. And NASCAR is officially back. If you're into entertainment betting, that's okay. You can still bet on stock prices, the weather, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. If you are an MMA fan, UFC 250 is coming up on June 7th. Make sure to stay tuned to this podcast to hear former MMA star Shael Sonnen and BetOnline's Dave Mason to talk all things UFC 250, including all the latest betting lines. They're all open 24 hours a day and all online. Visit the website or use your mobile device and join today to receive your new welcome bonus. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. Visit BetOnline.ag. Don't forget that promo code PODCAST1 for your sign-up bonus. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Outside of the case law that you mentioned, is there any other precedent that would be applicable to I that? mean, it's, you know, the way I, I think about it, I talk about it being a civil rights issue because I think about it in the same way that I think about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? And, and that's not to say that the problem of tech censorship is equivalent to the problem of racism. It's clearly not. But, you know, the, there's a story that I tell a lot um, from Lyndon Johnson, the, from the, the Years of Lyndon Johnson by Robert Caro, where Lyndon Johnson, you know, he, he would always send his favorite car 
back from DC to Texas and have two of his aides, black aides, drive the car. And then one year he's like, hey, can you take the dog too, please? Like, I just want the dog back home when I go back to Texas. And they're like, please don't make us do that. And he's like, why? And he's like, you don't understand how hard it is to drive as a black man through the South. You can't stop in a motel. You can't go to a restaurant. Like you have to drive 15 miles off the road to find a place to eat or a place to stay. It's an enormous pain. And now we have to take a dog too? Like, no, thank you. And as Johnson tells it, that was the moment he's like, you know, we, we need to stop that. That's not okay. Like, it's just not, that's not how it should be in America. It shouldn't be that like somebody driving through, you know, taking a road trip has to drive 30 miles out of the way to find a place to sleep. Like we should stop that. And, and that does entail telling these private companies, no, you do have to serve this person. Well, I mean, it's like, because some, you know, at a certain point that private property right is overwhelmed by a different right. And, and that's when I think about platform access as a civil right. Like this is a minor constraint to put on very, very large social media companies that says, you know, you have enormous liberty, but there's just this one thing you can't do because there's a right at stake that you, we need to protect. And that means that you're not able to just ban people on a whim. And, but would you give a special, would, would, if you were to design the regulatory um, mm. uh, design, if you, were, if you were to put together regulatory design, I should say, mm -hmm. or if you were to put together a law, would you only put certain amount of tech companies or all platforms and publishers? Would you go after a section? What is it, 302 or 802? Or I mean, communications, the, decency 230. 230, I'm 230, sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, 230 is I a, always get the number. a much thornier 302 issue. 302 is the FBI form. And that's a question about whether, you know, I mean, and it's a, that's a very indirect route because that's ultimately about most of 230 or a big part of 230 is liability protection, saying you can't be, you're not the publisher of any kind. But I guess what I'm saying is this. Right. So if Twitter and Facebook are technically designated the same as a Fox News or CNN as um, a platform. Right. I mean, I think that like you can you can draw up a law. I think Josh Hawley's actually tried to do this where it's like your social media platform is designed to talk about an Internet platform. You can even name them by name. There's right. only three or four of yeah. them. Right. Yeah. Or you can have a user count that's like 300 million users of your platform or something like that as a threshold. Got it. OK. You know, I mean, uh, and I mean, that's, that that would carve out local news station from having to have every person on the yeah, show. Yeah, which would be ridiculous, obviously. Or yeah. I would have to have everyone on the Charlie Kirk show. Yeah, no, clearly not. I mean, there's... Because we're a publisher. Right. You know, that's... And that's... You, you don't want to get there. You want to say that it's... it's Again, it's... The problem here isn't that, you know, people don't kick up each other off of their platforms. The problem is the monopoly power that specific, huge platforms have. But I think the argument you make that this is a different type of monopoly than anything we've ever seen yeah this is not they're not exploiting you directly at the purchase part point yeah they are exploiting your data yeah that's true they um, are mining your decisions right this is something potentially far more catastrophic than paying more for bananas at the grocery store yeah yeah and i mean it's a lot and it's a lot i just i mean the, the money side isn't even it's not even relevant i mean it's just it's so much about their political power and political goals and they're adversarial to us, right? We're the, you know, think about it. I mean, like, we're the ones out there who before this were saying, you should let companies do what they want. The left was out there saying, no, we need to regulate, we need to regulate, we need to regulate. And yet these, these companies have been spitting in conservatives' faces for years. Why should we continue to, this is a self-defeating principle. Why should we continue yeah, to so, enable behavior that hurts us? But conservatives would, in a value hierarchy, mm -hmm. they would say, our commitment to private property and entrepreneurship and free enterprise supersedes Mm -hmm. the malevolence of the companies yeah and and that's where i would say on that point we should re we should restructure that value hierarchy and right? i th i think it also begs the question but why do you have principles right I you mean, have principles because you want the best for the country mm -hmm. or because you want to win a coffee shop debate right like i mean it's it's sort of does I mean, that does that make sense what yeah, i'm saying right like it is yeah do your principles have a point or 
you know, there, there was something else weird. I remember when people talk about, you know, Mitt Romney and the people who like betrayed President Trump always talk about being loyal to their principles. And I thought that's an excuse for being disloyal to people. Or your country. Yeah, or your country. Like what? I mean, so I, I again, principles matter a lot to me. In sure. fact, I actually value principles above party. Sure. I agree. In the value hierarchy. But I value my country and human – I value my country and human beings above principles. Yes. My principles actually point to what's best for my country. Yes. But if there's something good for my country that might be in violation of my principles, mm -hmm. I will always side with my country. Right. Now, generally, my principles and my patriotic aims actually overlap. Right. Like almost all the time. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and But it's also like then some principles really are principles that are absolutist. And some are more like rules of thumb. You know? Yes. And, and some some are just very abstract, though. Yeah. For example, some are, well, we can't have any government intervention from this point forward in the economy ever. That 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 is a talking point in the yeah. intelligentsia of conservative libertarianism. Right. I mean, OK, uh, I think you will find yourself quickly out of power, um, which and, is where they are, which is where they are uh, unable to actually protect your constituents or influence politics on many other important issues, which are probably more important than the minor interventions you're talking about. You know, I mean, think about issues of war and peace. Like, I think the best point that libertarians have is against regime change wars. I completely agree. Um, and I think that the neoconservatives, this is where I agree most of the liberty folks. Mm -hmm. I think the neoconservative nation builder, we're going to be able to evangelize the entire world around the ideas of free markets, I think is foolish. Agreed. And dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and it's... I mean, it, and it has destructive consequences. I mean, I think we talked about this yesterday. I think Bill Crystal should have to answer every every time he goes and speaks in public why he hasn't retired from public life over the Iraq War, because that's such a profound mistake that has such tragic human consequences. And he was a personally responsible for being the, the primary advocate, the chief flag waver, the chief that. flag waver for that. Like we're not, you know, in you don't have to commit seppuku like you would in Japan in the 1940s over that, but you do need to retire to public life and enjoy your grandchildren. Like that, that he should be asked that question. There should be, I mean, back to like skin in the game, there should be consequences for disastrous predictions like that. Well, I also think that this kind of best practices conservatism that I see forming, which is the family really matters, mm -hmm. the restoration of a kind of a moral stature in society, not indifference to moral decline. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And like, is, that, is that something also you see, yeah. for example, whether it comes to drug laws and the, you know, some of these social indecent laws? It mm -hmm. seems as if conservatives have been very willing to mm -hmm. surrender on those to the left. Yeah, and I don't think I think there's a, a good return to like, hey, wait a second, like we don't need to be super pro drug liberalization here. Like there's well, a and I, I, I mean, I used to be indifferent in the sense I I never thought marijuana was helpful or good to society. But I was indifferent, like who cares if we decriminalize it or legalize it? I should say, and people use it. Mm -hmm. And and now I've seen what it has done to states mm -hmm. and families and people, and I ask myself. Is it worth whatever advantage you're getting a tax benefit or that you can have some weed shop on the side of the street? Yeah. People say, well, Charlie, doesn't liberty matter? And that's where I say, yeah, I love liberty. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think that people find liberty from being addicted to something. Yeah. Actually, you become a slave to that substance. Right. You know, I, I, I find in the drug debate, I, I weigh the sort of liberty interest in being able to Which to is do not drugs. insignificant. Right. I just weighed a lot less than the technocratic consequences in that debate, at least. I think it, you know, from my perspective, the best arguments against the drug war are that it is really damaging and, and, and prosecuted poorly. I mean, I think of like the wire and the you know policing abuses and how it changes police departments to almost being like kind of it, it just changes how they operate. Um, well, I think there's a huge difference between 
saying we should knock down every door of every person who's doing a joint yeah. to saying we should glamorize it no. and put it on the side of the street and widespread legalize it where it becomes embedded into the country. I yeah. actually think there's something to be said. They said, well, Charlie, everyone could get it. Every and I used to make this argument. Somewhere. Well, everyone in my school could always get weed anyway. But they had to do it in the shadows. Right. There was something not approved about it. Yeah. And now that it's in the stream of normalcy and acceptability in the country, yeah. I don't think that should have societal stamp of approval. No, it shouldn't. I agree. Like there's there's shame has a role to play in, in government policy. And I'm not trying to shame if there's someone listening to this that has found some sort of extra plane of enlightenment sure. from it. I suppose that's part of what living in our society allows you to do. Sure. And I'm not going to overly, I'm not going to judge you on it, but I'm also not going to say I am never going to endorse a system of government that says to a young person that this is okay. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I don't, I don't think it should be, it shouldn't be lionized because it's not, I mean, it, you know, even something like weed, which, you know, can have dramatic effects, but it really does drain people of ambition. Like the, I always noticed that in my friends when they were, when they were high, it was just like, they just seemed like happy to go along. And not I, 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 one of my operative decision-making matrices is is trying to happy or unhappy when we do something and i think when we legalize weed china's happy yeah i agree i agree i think when we keep our borders open china's happy we build a wall china's unhappy right and that's i think that has to be a new decision like what makes china yeah. nervous or also would, would china even consider this <laughs> that's I, another fun one right yeah, like i don't think would, china would consider marijuana legalization right, they, they, they want an borders. ambitious productive workforce that yeah. is subservient to I guess weed would make them more subservient, but I think they want them productive. I right. think that they would, you know, and th I mean, there are things where obviously our attention and values like on free speech, if they wouldn't consider free speech, we'd be like, no, that's America. But then there are places where, I mean, if, when you're talking about something so dramatically hurtful to, you know, the strength of a country, like, I mean, we should think about whether or not to do that. So uh, is it okay if we talk about religion? Absolutely. Okay. So how would you describe your oh, view I mean, of god or religion so i mean i guess like you know people would some people would call it agnostic some people would call it like a weak atheist i'm generally i find it improbable um the metaphysical claims but i'm also i'm on the right for a reason like i i look at and you know at a minimum the bible is a repository of our oldest and most effective stories um and and that contain deep truths about the human condition mm -hmm. um which is why it's so long lasting but also why it has so much relevance yeah uh and especially a lot of the things about like, the psychological claims and the claims about how we live together and what's the best way for us to live together. Um, and so, you know, I find that I appreciate the, the religious and conservative approach to ethics much more than I like the modern liberal approach to ethics, which is basically, as I see it, you know, invented in the 1950s uh, and, uh, and then sort of like developed by critical theorists like Judy Butler. And, and I, I just don't think that that's a good ethical code. Mm-hmm. So, but, so you see the utility in Christian religion. Sure, absolutely. Um, and you know that, I, that's different than some atheists and some agnostics who sure, are yeah. militantly anti-Christian. No. And I, I almost never discuss it with like my audience. I mean, I occasionally like do have this discussion with the people who are like my close followers. Um, but uh, the in, in general, like I, I try and shy away from it because I, you know, I respect my followers' religion. Like my my audience is predominantly religious and. Um, I, I think it's partially it's out of both respect and respect for the religion itself, but also respect for them. So it's fair to say you don't believe in God. Yes, uh, that's fair to say. What would it take for you to believe in God? Um, I mean, I guess a, a personal experience that would 
demonstrate it or some i don't know how you do it but like some scientific theoretical proof or something mm -hmm. uh, um uh, but again the science doesn't really prove things it just disproves them so it, it would be very challenging i don't i don't, I don't know how and I, i've yet to see the thing that persuaded me so do you uh do you, do you try to pursue that revelation or you just kind of you're somewhat indifferent to I, I would say i'm in, i'm somewhat indifferent to it i think you know i mean we talked about yesterday like the idea of you know I, i've read the stoics and so have you mm -hmm. and it's like i think that you know the stoics have this just deep deep amount of wisdom and and kind of get to the idea of what it is to lead a good life and that that i should that i should try and do and and the the metaphysical questions about you know who did someone say that was a good life or not uh or you know how did this all come to be mm -hmm. and, and define what good and evil is um, that those that those are not those just aren't necessarily pressing and and that I'm not confident that they would be resolved either way. Mm -hmm. Like you know, I, I come from a place of I'm very I generally am very comfortable with uncertainty and not knowing things. I used to be a professional gambler, oddly enough, back in the day. Um, so I'm used to uncertainty and I'm used to dealing with things I don't know and uh, and just figuring out how to proceed in the face of that uncertainty. Do you uh, so how in your in your worldview, mm -hmm. how, how do you estimate the universe came into being? Uh, I mean, I have no idea. I guess, you know, I go like the Big Bang seems plausible. I don't know. Right. I'm not. Who, who knows? That, like, it's just way beyond. I, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not educated enough in the subject to even make a claim mm -hmm. about the Big Bang. You know, my, I was really bored by the science in general in, in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how I would. I don't know. Yeah. So th those of us that believe in God, we would say well, the Big Bang was the beginning of space, time, and matter. Mm -hmm. And therefore, using the laws of logic in order to create space, time, and matter, that would be something that was supernaturally above, spaceless, timeless, and matterless, essentially above that. Right. That pre-existed the creation of what we know as time. I mean, And, and, and that would, something would be a god. Right. And, and, and I guess like my, my skepticism of various claims like that, that sort of try and, what I, what I would call that, that's an attempt to logically prove a metaphysical claim about the world, right? Like, you know, essentially log, use logical reasoning to figure out like, what in fact was the origin of the universe without like a sort of experimental proof. But something. we know we have the Big Bang through experimental right. scientific observation. Right. It's pretty right. well agreed upon. I mean it's 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 in, it's known to it's known in the way that science is known in the sense of like we we you know it hasn't been disproved. We know the universe is expanding. We know sure. eventually it will contract. And so through certain observational science of the cosmos, we know that there was a point of origination. But just, I mean, remember, think about something as simple as like plate tectonics. Like that, you know, plate tectonics is a theory of geology, right? And that, that everybody agrees that mm -hmm. that's basically how it works. But that's a 40-year-old theory, right? Like people knew differently in, you know, the 20s and 30s about how geology worked and earthquakes worked. And they were completely wrong, right? But plate tectonics still existed before you discovered it. Sure, right? But like plate tectonics, it's possible that plate tectonics is not actually accurate. Like, I mean, we have some pretty good observationals, you know, we're probably going to hold up. Uh, but the, I guess my point being that, like, there's a lot of things that even in the scientific realm, people would have said, oh, we thought we knew that. Quantum mechanics is another one where people thought Newton's laws of gravity were basically laws, period. Like, that's the way it works. And then, you know, the astrophysicists in the 1940s started finding little problems, little places where it didn't, the law didn't cover, explain the behavior, um, and had to, like, make adjustments and figure out what was actually going on. And that's, that's just something as robust as gravity, you know, and, and, and gravitation. There's, you know, the... You know, this, I'm a big fan of uh, Richard Feynman, uh, deceased uh, astrophysicist, brilliant guy. Mm -hmm. Great book you should read if you haven't. Uh, Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. He's a very funny writer in addition to being a good scientist. And uh, that, 
um, you know, he's just, he talks a lot about how do we know things? Well, science doesn't teach you anything absolutely. It just, you can prove things wrong, but you can't prove them right. And mm -hmm. that's the scientific approach. So you're, you're a believer in the Stoics. Yes. As am I, Marcus Aurelius, yeah. Meditations. I'm a Christian Stoic. Yeah. So my, Sto my Christianity in, in, informs my Stoicism of Fair. leading a good life and the belief in duty and discipline and the, yeah. the, absent, the absence of self-indulgence. So, but absent a God, do you think objective morality can exist? I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know, uh, like, you know, I mean, you get to, the way I think about morality is it's like, I'm, I'm just, ethics is a really thorny question, especially when you're trying to deduce from, you know, is claims to ought claims. Like, I think Hume nailed that pretty well. And I, I think even people like Sam Harris, who think that they've solved the is ought problem, I don't think they have. You know, I think they're just playing semantic games. Like, there's a fundamental difficulty of using claims about the way the world is to make, to prove claims about the way the world ought to be. Um, that said, so I think about, you know, where do our moral intuitions come from? The feelings of, like, injustice or anger and... Or love. Or love. Are these just chemicals? Or is right. there something... Well, I mean, there's Is there another plane of existence? Well, so, I mean, you know, there's... On some issues, you know, clearly around the world, people have differing opinions. But then there seem to be some issues where it's, like, pretty consistent. Like, mm -hmm. uh, don't murder, don't steal. That people feel profoundly... And it doesn't matter what culture you're in, what religion they believe, that somehow these these norms evolved and that these rules came down and it's like that's a pretty good idea that something is pretty deeply embedded in human psychology and, and across humanity and as well is um something that uh is sort of almost not quite maybe not quite universally but almost universally accepted and, and pro-social pro like these things survived like if, if you think about it, it's not just people that evolved it's their societies and norms and ideas that evolved and mm -hmm. these survived everywhere. Something is good about them. Something works. So, you know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm humble about saying, oh, that's objectively true or objectively false. Uh, and But I can say, like, I feel pretty solid about murder being bad. I feel pr really, 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 really solid mm -hmm. to the point of, in the same way that I would say I feel really solid about the theory of evolution being true. You know, you, know, you, you, have, you hold back and you say, well, yes, it's a scientific theory in the abstract. It could be disproven. Mm -hmm. That possibility is always out there. But... It's pretty well demonstrated in the same way that I think, like when you're talking about more, big moral claims that are you find cross culturally almost everywhere, you can say that those things are, you know, at that level of truth. I guess. Mm -hmm. So the your your interpretation of morality is somewhat human beings might have something instinctive within them that yeah. might guide them. Right. I mean, Socrates called it his inner daemon, not demon, but almost right. that there's a. There's a pull. There's a tension point yeah, there. Yeah, like that. Our, our psychology didn't come out of nothing. Like it, it's it's a product. Of I agree. It was created. Right. Well, I say it's a product <laughs> of evolution, but like either you know, or I think it's a product of evolution rather. Um, could have been created. Not ruling that possibility out, but I think it was. I think it was likely the product of evolution. So, so do you believe in absolute truths? In absolute truths, um, that's not a question I've given deep thought to, and I guess it would depend depend on how you defined it. Um, again, is you know, like the I. I when it comes to the sort of metaphysical claims about science, I would say you can't prove anything absolutely true. You can make it, it things either, things are just haven't been disproven mm -hmm. for a really long time and are really robust seemingly to being disproven. So, um, but I'm not, so I guess the answer for most people, how they would define absolute truth, I guess what my answer would be no, probably. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it's sort of like the, the way I think about all these sort of like 
claims. I mean, in a sense, it's sort of similar to using logic to sort of prove a metaphysical claim. It's like, I feel like it's getting it back. It's like a backwards. It's an attempt to go to prove a metaphysical claim via the back door rather than through how we, you know, if we were trying to prove the theory of evolution, we'd be we'd try to go through the front door, like look at the, you know, hear all these experiments. If we, we do experiments saying if this theory is true, these are the consequences. Mm -hmm. And we do an experiment, we see whether the, ex the results match. The right. And even under the theory of evolution, though, there is a huge gap that is unexplained in science. Oh, sure. Which is the species gap. Right. So we, we can prove adaptation through Darwin Finches and through observational science. We've never actually seen evolution happen. Right. I mean, you know, there's like, I mean, in the, in the cells, perhaps not. I mean, it's just, again, it's a theory with powerful explanatory power. Um, and that answers questions we have. However, the point being is that the improbability of evolution happening as chance, some mathematicians have said it's anywhere between 400 to the 1,000th power to the 3,000th power, which if you believe in the improbability of it happening naturally, I mean, it would only a god could make something as improbable as that. As well, that, that I mean, I guess like the, you know, the, you just, you, I don't know, I would still stay with like, I, I wasn't saying that, I, I don't know how you could just, you could disprove the theory of evolution. Like any scientific, any actual scientific statement can theoretically be disproven. That's, that's almost the definition of a scientific statement. That's, I think, Karl Popper and falsifiability. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so I forgot. I, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it, and it, I think it, it kind of ties all together with, and I'm fascinated by it because I find um, you, have such for, you have such commitment to the things you believe in. Yeah. You know, seizing the endowments mm -hmm. and things you know to be true. Colleges are corrupt institutions. So you're committed to those truths, right? I mean, in the sense I'm not, I mean, I would be committed to the the idea that we should proceed to these forms of action that from my, you know, that given what we know, they are the best courses to go by. Right. Um, and I would still be like, but I would still be humble about like my particular knowledge of like the, the factual truth of any given situation that I hadn't examined or like the underlying cause of it. If I didn't know it, I mean, there, I think there's a difference between saying I have, I believe in that I am correct in this, in recommending a course of action versus saying that I am correct about a metaphysical claim about the world. Mm -hmm. But I think get, if the metaphysical for you is a barrier, I think it could still be said that there's logical ways to be able to say that there's there's an improbability of our existence here, right? I mean, I think, you know, it's, I, I don't know, I, I'm used to the idea of, I mean, a, a pandemic seemed improbable, right? Like, you know, the, we have improbable events happen. I mean, again, I'm a poker player. I, I got used to bad probability events happening to me all the time. Uh, and even very rare ones, you know, people would, people, when you have a one outer on the river and people would be like, how did that happen? That was completely impossible or improbable. I'm like, actually it happens one out of every 47 times. Cause that's how, that's how often you get one card that you're looking for on the river in Texas Hold'em or something like that. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's incorrect actually. And I think about it, but something along those lines. Anyway, uh, the point being that, you know, when you roll a dice enough times, you, you hit something will hit and it's hard to judge the fact that you know how probable it was that anything like this would occur anywhere um, when it's already when it's happened in your instance. I don't know. Hmm. So uh, that's that's why I kind of find the argument from it. it you know, give it, it it's so improbable that everything worked out the way it did perfectly for us human beings. I, I that argument doesn't persuade me just because I think you you run an experiment enough times, eventually some form of an improbable result occurs. Mm -hmm. I I would sympathize with that if we had other planets that were even close to the composition or the capacity to be able to sustain life 
I mean, well, we just, we haven't seen them yet. I mean, our, our window into the universe at this point is not, not that large. I mean, because think about how long it takes to even get communication. You know, we're talking about multiple light years away to the nearest mm -hmm. star. Well, we, we, we so. do know in some sense the improbability of the, the atmosphere and the molecules and the human beings' interaction with it, which, which again, so I, I find it, I'm fascinated and very thankful that you're able to, to talk about this. Yeah. So, so for those that don't know what being a stoic is, is someone who has a high commitment to do it due to duty and to sure. discipline and to living a good life. Yeah. And I, I also see it as sort of a, a, a very much a development of your own mindset and resilience to problems. Like, I mean, stoic practice involves things like there's a great memento mori, like, you know, you un understand that you may leave life right now and contemplate that fact as a way or and contemplate the worst things that might leave happen. Leave this life. Yeah. Leave this life. You can leave this life. My Latin is shaking. Um, but like that, that I think that is a really useful, uh, you know, it's useful psychologically and it's, it's a really healthy approach, especially in the world where you know, we're on mm -hmm. social media and getting attacked all the time. Sure. It's, it's good to, it's good to have a robust mindset and to be used to the idea, have already contemplated bad things happening and sort of settled yourself. Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a, as a Christian, again, being a Christian stoic, I, I look at the gospel and the testimony of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. and I say to myself, there was something special about this guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there has never been a passive individual, I mean by passive, non-military leader mm -hmm. in human history. It's had such a impact on the entire world. Now, some, maybe you would explain it away as he was overly charismatic, right place, right time, understood the traditions, or maybe as we have four different eyewitness accounts written right within a comparable time period, an empty tune that still needs to be explained away by many different, you know, historians and independent observers and people that were around him that were incentivized to disbelieve him, not believe his resurrection and all died a martyr's death. There's something there that warrants an explanation. I mean, perhaps I, I am, uh, you know, not to, I, I don't want to be flippant with this because obviously I think religion is very important. But I mean, no, feel free to. I won't be offended. <laughs> right, fair enough. Let me be. Who knows? Anyway, uh, we, we know about the unreliability of eyewitness testimony just with criminal trials in our own country. Right, there's there's a great stuff on the Innocence Project about people just making huge mistakes and and on things that really very important happened to them. That's why we need more than one. Right, that's but why per, we have four. Perhaps, but like there was a case where you had four people and they all got it wrong because they just misidentified it. And we're talking about something that happened then. And, and then, they testified their own against their own interest. I mean, to who, a martyr's who death. Knows? I'm I'm. I'm saying, like, you know, basically, I think the the way that a Feynman would look at it is like we have we have deduced things that we call the laws of physics, i.e., the the theories that have been ro most robust to disprove. Mm -hmm. And under those theories, the the this story does not jive, right? And so, well, we admit that, right? We admit yeah. that this was supernatural, right? Supernatural. Like we're not we're not saying that it wasn't in complete concert with right New Newtonian physics. And and I mean, I I'm then kind of like. Okay, so well, I don't, I I just don't, I don't have that sort of belief, you know. I it, I don't know. It just is. It's very different from how I approach the world. No, that, that that's things. fair. It's a it's a level deeper of the Bible, which I thank you for saying the good things you said about how it's a good moral composition, and yeah. I believe all those things, and I think yeah. the Bible should be taught in every school across the country, outside of a religious text, mm -hmm. and a historical one as well, because um, you obviously you you view the Bible as important stories. Mm -hmm. You don't view it as a historical text, though. Right. I mean, like, I mean, I guess like you could say it, it's it's a historical text in the sense that many histories themselves are flawed, especially from that time period. But some right. of the Bible must be true, right? Um, sure, right. Like they're they are going to make some claims about fact that were in fact. I mean, true. for example, we know there were two temples and they were both yeah. destroyed. We know that there was right. Roman rule. We know that 
I mean, Caesar Augustus rule. Like, sure, sure. Like, I mean, but in the same way that, like, Thucydides, Thucydides is probably has a lot of accuracy in it. But also, like, we can't, we, there's not really a really way to historically verify how much was inaccurate. Right. It's difficult. But the, the point, so the point is, at what, you, so you admit that some of it is obviously rooted yeah. in truth. The yeah. question is what parts sure. aren't. Right. And the, the critical part of the Christian experience, without putting you, obviously, on the hot seat, right. again, I appreciate you chatting about it, sure. is that, what what makes Christ's testimony so different, and I've kind of walked through it, is the verification, the different eyewitness accounts, the testimony of Paul, the, the witnesses of the, the disciples post the martyrdom of Christ, the resurrection, the empty tomb, the independent veracity and verification of Josephus, the spread of the gospel, all without military conquest. Now, you could say right place, right time, but there were plenty of Mediterranean religions that were trying to kind of get its, you know, there were the Sons of Light, there was Erastianism, mm -hmm. there was there's something arguably higher about this individual i mean you can argue that way or or just that more effective better serve you know like and i've heard all those arguments yeah i mean it it can go any number of ways and I, I mean i would hesitate to like i guess like i wouldn't rule out your explanation but i would hesitate to accept it as the correct one if, as long i mean can we rule out the others i don't know mm -hmm. I, I, it's enough. not something that i've and it's also that like in particular when you're talking about the the bible and it's like particular evidence i'm, I'm not super familiar with it i'll be frank like you know, it's one of those things where my, my no, that's that's very fair. Thank yeah. you for you to say that. Yeah, right. And like I appreciate, I should say, you yeah, saying that. Right. Like I'm, I'm not trying to claim things I know that I don't. And I mean, that's that's sort of that's at the heart of the whole worldview here, which is this essentially like a kind of epistemic humility. Like, how do I know what I know? Well, it's it's really hard to actually know things. And so, you know, you got it. You should just generally be careful, and and it's good. To no, use. I I agree with that. Yeah, and I think that that. It's a, it's a very it's very interesting as you and I come from that same um, beginning, if mm -hmm. you will, and you you go a different, completely different direction. I think by surrendering, I actually find that we're so small, so molecular, mm -hmm. and then you then you can have an experiential. Um, yeah, it's it's. I mean, I see that it's it's also hum humble in its own. It's a distinct type. It's a different type of humility, right? It's not a humility about what what you know. I guess in that sense. But it's a humility about your place, uh, your place in the world, and your existence. Your existence, and I mean, uh, so I guess those are distinct things, and I think that's very important, right? Like, even there's like the whole thing. Remember, you know, I think the in the Roman, even the Romans, when the Caesar had the triumph, would be like, "Remember, you are mortal," or something like. Yeah, that. I mean, and the Christian ethic is built around the idea that you are so molecular, you mm -hmm. are so tiny in the eyes of God, mm -hmm. that you need a Christ, you need a Savior, yeah. because you are just not enough. Interesting. Um, so, in but to close it all together, where you and I find agreement, though, is living a good life. Yes, and and, and it's fulfilling to be a, a in this stoic. Yeah, and, and and to to lead and to be kind of to take life's slings and arrows and 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 deal with them and be robust to them, um, to see yourself succeed and accomplish things that um, other people have trouble with. I mean, to 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 live your life as well as it can be lived and do what you can. I mean, there, there's. There that I know that it feels good to do that, and I'm always impressed by others who do it. And there's there's a deep sense of satisfaction. And so, is that I mean, do I have like do I believe that it's objectively good as deemed by you know someone on high? Uh, I doubt it, but uh, I proceed in the face of that uncertainty anyway. Yeah. Well, Will, this has been great. Any closing thoughts? HumanEvents.com. HumanEvents.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter and Periscope at Will Chamberlain. Um, and uh, this is great. Long conversation. Really good one, though. Yeah. Freedom at CharlieKirk.com. You guys can email us. Will, you're a very deep thinker. I really Thank enjoyed you. it, man. We Absolutely. need more conversations Absolutely. like this. So thanks, everybody.
Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Really appreciate the kind words and support that you guys are emailing us. Keep them coming. Freedom at charliekirk.com. Freedom at charliekirk.com. And email me, the first 10 people that email me, your favorite place to go visit in the summer that is not your hometown. The first 10 people that do that right here, right now, will get a free signed copy of the MAGA Doctrine. That's right. Free, free signed copy of the New York Times bestseller, MAGA Doctrine. God bless you guys. Thanks so much. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary.